Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You are listening to the Women's Podcast, brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Discover a different kind of dark. Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. We're in lockdown, the sequel uh, in Dublin anyway. We're on level three, like a video game, but you don't want to get to the next level in this video game. So it's a bit strange. Hope you're doing okay wherever you are in the country. And hopefully what we do in Dublin will make things better and um, get things back on track. But Who knows what's going to happen? I was in Dublin town on Saturday evening and it was definitely quieter, but it's great to see the restaurants being supported by um, people getting takeaways and eating outside. And remember, not all takeaways are unhealthy. So I'm definitely going to be trying to do less home cooking and spending a bit of money to support those in the hospitality industry because it's just a nightmare for them. Financially, it really is. At least the sun is still shining and the schools are still open Thanks be to God. And we are still the kind of country that gives an obituary, if you saw it in the Irish Times a couple of days ago, to our president's dog, Shida, who sadly died over the weekend. And may she rest in peace. And we should also give mention to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who also died. And what a woman she was. If you get a chance to look at her obituary in the New York Times, you won't regret it. It's an absolutely brilliant appraisal of an extraordinary life and of a woman who did so much for women and girls in America, but also all over the world and just shines like a beacon in these terrible times of American politics. So do go and read about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was just a legend, the notorious or BG. In other more better news, we are very close to bringing you some details of our next season of Big Nights In. So hopefully they will be something to keep you warm on the cold Saturday nights running up to Christmas. Yes, I said it. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. It's coming down the tracks and it's going to be a very, very different Christmas than the ones we have been used to. A Covid Christmas. Now to today's episode. It's a good one. Over the last few years, Louise O'Neill has written novels that very quickly became talking points. Only Ever Yours explored the demands put on young women. Asking for it began a conversation in Ireland about consent and shone a light on how rape victims are treated here. And her book, Almost Love, put a magnifying glass on a particularly toxic relationship. Her latest book, After the Silence, sees her going down a different path. It's a thriller, but it features the same uncompromising voice as in her previous novels. It's set on an island off West Cork and it's 10 years since the murder of a young, beautiful islander and a pair of documentary makers from outside of Ireland have come 
onto the island to try to uncover the truth and make a documentary about the notorious killing. Louise and I talked about the new book, about the loss of her grandmother last year and about how she has navigated these strange times. Here it is, my conversation with author Louise O'Neill. So Louise, thank you very much for joining us. Like everybody, uh, you've had a strange year and a tough year so far, like we all have. Tell us about it though, because you also had a significant loss in your life too. Um, I mean, yeah, I think if you're talking about 2020 in general, it has just been an incredibly unsettling, strange year. You know, I mean, I keep looking back over old text messages from January and just thinking or, you know, rereading my diaries from that the start of the year and just being so surprised by the sort of very petty concerns that I had. Um, and I honestly, sometimes it's like a time capsule. Like you just look at this person and you think, my God, you have no idea what the rest of the year has in store for you. Um, and I think, you know, particularly at the big beginning when lockdown was first called, like I found it incredibly paralyzing. Like I found it difficult to read, um, which has never happened to me before. You know, um, I found it really hard to write. I, I couldn't even concentrate on Netflix or, you know, when someone would say, oh, watch Tiger King. Like after 10 minutes, I felt as if it was as if my brain was slightly broken. And I, I just couldn't seem to absorb anything. Um, so, you know, it took me a while to, to come out of that. Um, and I think what was really interesting as well is that you're kind of coupled with that is this guilt, you know, like I think a lot of people felt really guilty if if you felt scared or if you felt unnerved by it because, you know, you would start rattling off, you know, oh, well, okay, I still have my job and my family are well and, you know, I, I'm being like a, a child, I'm being a big baby about this. Um but I think it was just kind of trying to work through um, all of that. And, you know, it's still quite odd. You know, sometimes I look around and you see everyone with the masks on and it's like, it can be suddenly quite jarring. And you just think, my God, how things have changed. Um, my uncle lives in Thailand and my mother and I went to see him last summer. And I had actually bought a mask to wear on the flight um, because whenever I, I go on a flight, I always end up getting a cold. So I bought a, um, a mask to wear and I actually felt too embarrassed to wear it. So I did, like it just kind of stayed in my like my carry on. And it's just really funny to think, you know, a year later, just how it's become just a really commonplace part of my wardrobe, you know, like <laughs> trying to make it look fashionable. Um, so <laughs> what a difference. Yeah. Um, and I did mention loss as well. I mean, everybody's had different losses, but you lost your grandmother. Well, I mean, we she died in 2019. So it was before all of this. Um, and in a strange way, when when this happened, particularly in March, I kept saying to my mother, I'm glad that she died in 2019, because I think that Firstly, I think trying to explain this to her and trying to, I think she would have been very baffled and not being able to go to mass and, you know, things like that. I think she would have really struggled with because, you know, she lived by herself. She was fiercely independent um, and she lived by herself in our, in my, um, in the old farmhouse. But I think the isolation really of not being able to see people, um, you know, and not being able to come visit us or for us to go visit, I think would have been really difficult. Mm. And also, you know, when she died, um, she had spent a week in hospital beforehand and the doctors had told us, you know, she's she's on her way out. And 
you know, we were, we took it in turns to kind of be by her side. Um, and when, when she did eventually die, I was actually there by myself with her. Um, and it was this really beautiful experience actually in a lot of ways to be with someone and to I suppose comfort them and to tell them you know it's okay and you you can leave and you don't have to take care of the rest of us anymore and I suppose hearing some of the horror stories about people who have lost um, family members to COVID and how incredibly difficult that is and you know not being able to go into hospital to visit your loved ones I feel enormously grateful, um, which which is funny because if you had said that to me last year, I would have said, no, I want her for another 10 years or, you know, however many I could have gotten. Mm-hmm. But I think that there was a, a, a grace and a dignity in the way that she died. Um, and, you know, to be able to bury her um, and to have a proper Irish funeral and to be able to mourn her in that way, because, you know, I think the Irish are very good at that. And I think it's so cultural um, and there's a reason why we have those traditions, you know, they're a way of processing grief. And I think when I see people who, you know, haven't had that step, there's almost a trauma in that because you don't have that way of moving through the initial stages of your grief. You don't have the sense of community and the sense of people coming together to be with you, to, to support you, to protect you at that time. Um, so in a lot of ways, I do feel, I think, grateful that that she wasn't here to experience this. Yeah, you, you spoke as well. I mean, your grandmother was 85 and it was, a, as I said, a significant loss. It really hit you very hard. But I think you've spoken about the fact that um, people don't really expect that or understand that necessarily, that that grief that comes, uh, you know, doesn't matter how long somebody's lived or how, you know, whatever. Tell us about that and, and your relationship with her and people's expectations around getting over it, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, when she first died, like the grief was so intense. And, you know, it, it's interesting because when I was 14, you know, I've spoken about this before, but when I was 14, my uncle died and he was 30. Um, so I think that when you're when you experience the loss of someone who's that young, you understand what a tragic death looks like. So a lot of the time with my other grandparents, there was a real sense that I had of this isn't a tragedy. They're old. They weren't, you know, they they all actually had the other three all had dementia by the end. Um, and there was kind of a sense of this is the natural order of things in a way. And, and so it's not that I'm kind of conflating, I suppose, the two or that I thought that my grandmother's death at 85 was a tragedy because obviously, you know, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that, you know, people get old and people die and this is kind of just a part of life and you have to accept that. But I suppose she was such a central figure in my life since I was very young. Um, And I think from the moment that I understood what death was, I was really afraid of losing her. Like I remember saying to her, and I must have been like six, maybe five or six. um, And, you know, just, (laughs) I can still remember she was in the kitchen in the, in the farmhouse and, and saying, you know, I really don't want you to die. Like, I, I need you to promise me that you won't die. And it's so funny, Roisin, looking back, because she was probably in her late 50s. Like, she was probably like, I'm not that old. Um, but, you know, she she bent down to me and she said, you know, Louise, everybody dies. The Lord calls you home in his own time. 
but she said it won't happen for a very long time. And I kind of was reassured by that um, because, I, I, you know, I think there's that generation of Irish women who just were such central figures in the family, like the real matriarch. And I think what was so unusual about her was that she was so, she was always just so dignified and had this incredible inner strength, but it was a very quiet, like, you know, she didn't, she didn't like to, I suppose, make her presence too known or, you know, or to, to feel as if she was drawing too much attention to herself. And yet she was the person that everybody turned to, that everybody wanted her approval and, and to hear her opinion and, you know, to get her blessing. Um, and she was just incredibly kind. And I think I was the sort of child that I was always being told, you know, that I was too much, you know, I was too loud. I was too chatty. I was too brash. I was too, you know, I, I was too inquisitive, you know, wh whatever. And I think that like a lot of the time, particularly with my parents who were wonderful parents and like, I adore them, but I think there was a sense of life will be easier for you if you maybe just kind of pull back a bit. And they were probably right that life would be easier for me. But I also think that as a child, you internalize that as, oh, there's something wrong with me. Um, whereas I think with my grandmother, there was always just this sense of Louise is who she is and that's fine. And I just think that idea, I think, of someone accepting you unconditionally for who you are is actually so rare because most people, whether it's a parent or whether it's a teacher, or whether it's a loved one, want you to change in some small way to make their lives easier or, you know, to, to make things more comfortable for them. So to have someone who just accepts you and loves you unconditionally is an incredible gift for a child, but I think for any human being. Yeah, well, that's beautifully said. And I think we can all um, think of people who we've had that feeling with. And it's, it is a very special, rare thing. Um, we were going to hear talk about your um, amazing new book, After the Silence. And were you writing it when your grandmother died? Is that uh, where you were? Or No, what's interesting is that I had actually spent six months. I had had the idea in June 2018 and I spent six months researching, which is more than I've ever because, you know, I don't write historical fiction. So but I was it was a, quite a lot of research with this book. And I started writing. I think it was like the start of January and she died three weeks later and I was so just beset with grief that I I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't write. I just was crying all of the time. Um, and my boyfriend was very, very patient with me because I think that most people, as I said earlier, have this sense of, okay, this is your grandmother, you know, you need to kind of move on with this. Um, so, I, I and then I think I, I suddenly had this real panic of, shit, I have lost a lot of time with this. I'm really behind now in my schedule. If I want to make this date, I'm, I'm going to have to just really sort of, you know, put the pedal to the floor here. And, and it was really odd because when I, when I actually sat down to write it, I have never written so quickly with such confidence um, and also with such, I don't know, like I was happy with the work because usually I think I'm just constantly second guessing myself and, and this real sense of perfectionism comes in and I'm like, oh, this is useless. And, you know, so I think it was it was quite an unusual experience for me. And, you know, maybe that was due to the amount of research I put in. But I think anyone who's lost someone, I think you cling to that idea that 
that they're with you in some way. And to me, I think it felt like that she had her hand on my shoulder during it, you know, probably not looking too closely because I don't know if she would have approved of um, <laughs> Hopefully she wasn't reading like the sex scenes over over my shoulder, but um, I don't know this kind of sense that she was she was there and she was she was helping me in some way. And I think you know if if, an, if any atheists or people who aren't um, I spiritual or who don't believe in an afterlife are listening to this, they might think, oh, that's complete nonsense. But I do think that sometimes when you're in when you're grieving, I think you you clutch at anything, you know, the, like a rainbow or a robin or, you know, any sort of thing that you can hold as proof that the person that you've lost is still there and is still with you in some way. Well, tell us also now about when you came up with the idea, what it was inspired by and a little bit about the plot. No spoilers because lots of people won't have, won't have listened to it. It is a sort of a thriller. It's more of a thriller than perhaps anything else you've written. Um, although I would say that your books de- generally have a, a chilling aspect to them, um, if that's okay to say. And I mean, that yeah, as a compliment. No, <laughs> well, I suppose there, there are multiple strands really to the inspiration um, behind it. Um, well, I'll first, first I'll give kind of a brief synopsis of it. Um, so after the silence is set on a small island um, called Inishroon, um, which is off the coast of West Cork. And on this island, this very glamorous, wealthy family called the Kinsellas have set up what becomes this world-renowned artist retreat centre. Um, and the youngest Kinsella son, Henry, uh, marries a local woman called Keelan. And it is at her very wild, um, a very debauched uh, birthday party that this storm engulfs the island, cutting it off from the mainland. And the next morning, the body of a young woman is found. And no one can get on the island and no one can get off the island. So it has to have been someone here who did that. And then 10 years later, the murder of the beautiful Nessa Crowley still haunts the Irish people. And a team of documentary makers come to Inishroon determined to figure out exactly what happened that night. Okay. Can you tell that I've said that synopsis like... 500 times in the last three weeks it's very well <laughs> I hope I'm still kind of giving it a bit of enthusiasm you know it sounds very enthusiastic but um I mean it brings to mind immediately and you probably talked about this a lot as well about West Cork and I know that was an inspiration I mean the West Cork podcast I think um was a big driver of podcasts in a way people who'd never listened to them before listened to that first 100% and it was because of that very incredible way that the two people who from who weren't from Cork at all who were English came over and brought fresh eyes to a, a case that we'd all been looking at unfold for many years. Obviously, the terrible murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. That obviously had an inspiration in terms of the documentary makers coming and, and looking at that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the case is like, you know, that the actual case and the and the case at the centre um, of um, my novel are are so different, you know. Um, but I think that, you know, anyone who lived in West Cork at the time will tell you that it was just this... I mean, it was a, such a shock. Like it was, it was horrifying. And I think that when you live somewhere like that, particularly at that time, you know, um, in the it was ninety six, so I suppose the mid nineties, like crime wasn't exactly a factor of our lives. You know, like we didn't lock our doors. You know, as children, you know, my sister and I were afforded just enormous freedom. You know, we would leave in the morning and and kind of arrive home when we were hungry and my you know my parents were like okay cool like there was just never any questions about where we were going or what we were doing or who we were with and so I think when 
what you sometimes what you might have seen as the darkness of the outside world you know that like murder and 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 even theft or you know whatever like those things happened in big cities they didn't happen in our community and and i think to see that sort of encroaching upon our world was was just so terrifying i think is the only way you know particularly as a child and it's interesting looking back when you think of I suppose the time when this happened, you know, it was just before the Celtic Tiger really started to take off. It was almost like the death of old Ireland in a, in a strange way. Mm. Um, so when I heard about the podcast, you know, it's interesting. I haven't really traditionally been that interested in true crime podcasts. You know, like all of my friends are absolutely obsessed with them. You know, my WhatsApp group are ju- is just littered with recommendations for for true crime podcasts and documentaries but I had to listen to this one and it was funny I binged it in one day and you know that late that night I think I was lying in my bed and I was listening to you know that the the soundscaping in it is incredible the kind of the the howling of the wind and you know and the leaves and the trees and and I think I, I I realized that there was a part of me that was probably the 11 year old child, you know, the 11 year old girl that really hoped that they would solve this, you know, that they would give Sophie peace and that they would, I suppose the people of West Cork peace and that there would be some kind of resolution. And obviously, you know, that's not what happened because it's real life, you know, it's not fiction. Um, And it was just, I think afterwards, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And it was more, as you said, the the idea of these two journalists, you know, coming to this really small, tightly knit community with their English accents, asking all these questions, and um, and I think the idea of the outsider and the 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 Sassanok, you know, the Englishman, and and um, and also I think when you when you grow up in an area like West Cork where tourism is so important, like the the idea of the outsider, the idea of the blow in you know, you're very friendly to these people because you've sort of been taught to be friendly, extra friendly, you know, so that they feel like the Cade Miola Falta and that they feel like, oh God, this is such a wonderful, friendly area. But there's also a very strong knowing of these people are not our people. These people don't really belong here. And I think that that was what the the case, I think, highlighted so strongly. And also I think that was why I was so fascinated by the idea of these documentary makers coming in. So to me, that seemed just ripe for like creative exploration. Um, and I was actually in, it was after I'd listened to it and I was in uh, Anna McCarrick, um, you know, the uh, the Tyrone Guthrie Centre um, in Monaghan. Which is a writer's retreat, like the one that you did. Yes, just, the Artist um, Retreat Centre. And then I was like, oh, this is, you know, so it was just all these different like elements that, we, you know, you kind of cherry pick a little from this and a little from this and then somehow it forms a novel. It's very strange. You are listening to The Women's Podcast brought to you by Green and Black's Organic Chocolate. Chocolate to savour. You mentioned the Kinsel is there and I think it's okay to say that um, just as there's a Ian Bailey is the kind of uh, was a chief suspect and that's he much very much features in the podcast of West Cork. The Kinsel is are cooperating with um these documentary makers and we get this um really kind of forensic look at their relationship which it emerges through the book is is a really dysfunctional one so 
as with as I mentioned your books being chilling and I think that's something you do really really well there's there's sort of emotional abuse I suppose as a thread running through the book what was it that what you wanted to kind of explore that in a relationship um as I said you've done it before but I think this is quite stark and in sort of in some ways goes further than maybe things you've done before as in terms of looking at something really closely like that well I think it was interesting because once I decided that you know, that I that a true crime documentary would be at the center of the story. I started listening to a lot of other um, podcasts and and, you know, there was a very good Australian one. There was quite a few American ones. And actually what I found really interesting was I noticed a pattern that if there had been an unsolved crime and if the prime suspect um, was a man, a straight man, that a lot of the time there would be these this kind of rhetoric around why why does their wife or their partner stay with them? And I kept thinking, God, that is such an interesting parallel between the language that we use around victims of domestic violence. You know, like, why do these women stay? Like, why do these women, women put up with this? And I think once I started to look at those parallels, they just seemed to fit really well together. Um, and I suppose also, I once I realized that this was going to be a psychological thriller, I also thought that the theme of gaslighting ties in very, very neatly with that, because I think that, you know, with gaslighting so often, you know, the victims feel like they're losing their grasp on reality, that they can't trust themselves, that they can't trust their own instincts. And I think that is also quite true of a lot of a lot of books in this genre so to me I think it just seemed like a really I don't know it just they they seem to fit they just seem to fit together and and I do think that with this book I really did want how am I going to put this I think that I think that I was a little bit concerned that I had been maybe particularly with my adult novels that I was being sort of marketed or looked at as a literary author and I never saw myself as a literary author like I always saw myself as a very commercial writer you know who writes kind of accessible books but that are about you know that I suppose at the heart of the book there's always kind of a a, you know something a little bit more there's an extra layer there Um, and I think with this book I really wanted to lean into my commercial sensibilities like I was like I want to write a psychological thriller that's compelling, that's a page turner, that's gripping. But I also want to make sure, I suppose, that I'm sneaking a little bit of, you know, I suppose something that's that I think is important. And I remember when my my dad read it, he's always the first um, to read them. And he was going skiing. This was like February. So, you know, the, the kind of the last hurrah, but it wasn't Italy. Just going to put, put that out there. Um, but he, you know, he all, whenever he goes skiing, he always brings like, you know, five books and they're always... Harlan Coben and um, John, you know, like thrillers, you know. So he he brought mine with me, and he he rang me and he said, "Oh my god, I am loving this book." And he said, "It's like one of my normal books." And he said, "But your voice is so strong, you know." He said, "It's still you there." And I thought that's exactly what I wanted to do. That the story will come first and foremost. That it would be, as I said, a psychological thriller, but that I suppose that I still felt like I was saying something. 
if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's had a fantastic reaction so far. Are you pleased with it? I mean, you've said it's your favourite book. And is that because of what you've described there, that you've managed to mix the two things that you feel are very strong? You've got this very strong feminist voice, which I think comes through very strongly in the book. But also everything you've written, I think, has just been immediately like page turning. And I would say accessible, but I mean, and I mean that in the best sense, you know, so it's kind of genre fiction, but it's sort of you were pushing yourself a little bit, I think, in this. The plot is, you know, it's a whodunit, I suppose, to a degree as well. And we're not going to say who done it. And actually, I haven't even finished yet. So I don't even know who done it, which is probably (laughs) probably for the best. But is that why it's your favorite book? I'm trying to think. I think there's a few reasons. Um, first, I suppose with the psychological thriller aspect, I remember talking to a friend of mine at the beginning who really loves this genre. You know, she would read very widely in it. And she said, you know, she said the bad writers in this genre, she said, use women and women's bodies as plot devices and tropes. Um, and she said the good writers in this genre use it to interrogate, I suppose, the reason why women feel afraid. Um, and I kept thinking about the, that the whole way through. And I was like, yes, that makes like complete sense. If I think about the writers in this that I really admire, like, you know, uh, Liz Nugent and Leanne Moriarty and Erin Kelly and Tana French and Megan Abbott. I thought, yes, that's exactly what they're doing. So I think that was what I was kind of trying to lean into. And I suppose the reason probably why I why why I think it's my favourite and in a way, I wonder, is it because there was a certain degree of emotional distance between me and the character? You know, like Keelan is the first character that I've written that's older than I am. You know, she's married. She's been married twice. She has two children. All experiences that I have never had. Um, and, you know, I've I've also never experienced um, domestic abuse. Um, I mean, I've been very lucky. I think when you actually look at the statistics around this issue, it's just luck. And I think actually as a woman, it's really important to, well, not just as a woman, I suppose as anyone, you know, I think it's it's really important to acknowledge that because sometimes we have these ideas of what victims of domestic violence or domestic abuse look like, you know, that they maybe aren't as well educated as I am or that they, you know, have come from quote unquote bad homes or they, they're they stuck in a cycle of violence that maybe their parents, you know, um, had a quite a tempestuous relationship. And actually, I think it's it's really accepting that a lot of that is just luck, you know, that I was lucky that I didn't grow up you know, with my parents, you know, who had, like, had a very loving relationship. And I've just been lucky that I haven't mm. been in a relationship like that. Um, so sorry, I'm going off on a complete tangent. But anyway, and um, so I think that because of that, I was able to kind of keep just that it was that psychological distance even from the characters and from what was happening though even though it's quite a dark book that I didn't feel I, I suppose I just didn't feel as I didn't feel as if I was sort of cutting my veins open and, and bleeding onto the page which I definitely felt with I think particularly with asking for it and so I think maybe that it was I mean, the research was very difficult, but I think maybe the writing of it was slightly easier because I wasn't mining my own trauma uh, for fiction, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, just generally on writing, it's a really interesting time. I mean, you've, you're you somebody who came 
to writing, I think, with a very clear idea of what you wanted to write about and almost a sense of justice and things that you wanted to expose through your fiction and get people talking about. I think that's something that you've always done and you probably always will do. It's it's kind of seems to be what, what motivates you and what moves you. But being a writer nowadays, um, there's a lot of interrogation of everybody's work in a, in a way that's very different to maybe even when you wrote um, Only Ever Yours when you started out. So I'm thinking of the row around J.K. Rowling at the moment and cultural appropriation, say, with American Dirt. How have you been reflecting on those issues as a writer? Is it something that you keep? I know you're not on Twitter anymore, which is uh, a good thing because a lot of the stuff, the, the really bad stuff goes on there. But have you reflected on it as a writer? Is it something that you engage with or think about much? Yeah. Um, well, my partner is in charge of my Twitter account and that has taken like an enormous weight off my shoulders um, for sure. I think I try and be really, I think it's just trying to be nuanced about this conversation because I think so often you see people claiming that they have been cancelled. You know, you, you know, with, let's say, someone like a, a J.K. Rowling um, who has signed, you know, who signed that letter about freedom of speech. And you think you haven't been cancelled. Any television um, program, any newspaper in the world would kill to have an interview with you. Like the government isn't burning your books or banning your books. You haven't been... Um, like it's not that you can't get a contract or that you can't get a book published. So I think sometimes it, it's kind of easy to do, say, oh, ca cancel culture. I think that's such a simplistic uh, way of looking at it. Whereas actually, I think at the moment, there seems to be what maybe we could call consequence culture. And I think that's important. Like, I think if you have done something, you know, particularly was during the Me Too movement, like if you're a predator or if you've, if you've abused someone, then you have to face the consequences for that. Now, there, de there definitely have been cases where I have seen, you know, like a mob descending upon people um, on Twitter and you know that they haven't read the book or they haven't seen the movie. Um, and I, I would be wary of that. And I often think myself, um, OK, I, I, I need to hold judgment until I have read this book or until I have seen this movie, you know, before I kind of I pass judgment. So is it something that I give consideration to? I mean, the cultural appropriation thing, absolutely. Um, would I write a book now with, let's say, a main character who was a person of colour? And if the book dealt very much with race or racism, I don't think I would write that book. I don't think it is my place to write that book. Um, and I, I think sometimes that's difficult because you also think well does that mean for the rest of my writing career the only stories that I can tell are you know Irish middle-class women which might get quite boring um after a while but I do think there has to be a level of course correction I think that if you're a person of color and you've seen your art and your trauma and your pain being mined repackaged and sold at a higher price for what you can get I, I, I just can't even imagine how infuriating that would be. Um, so I think at the moment, this is a time of course correction. Um, and it is a time, I think, of amplifying um, marginalised voices, whether those are people of colour or LGBTQ. Um, and I think that's I think that's the right thing to do. And I think sometimes when you're coming from a place of privilege, you know, which I am, I think there's a realisation that 
oh, I might lose my place at the table here. Or I might, you know, if there's a if there's a panel and they say, well, we're going to have two um, white people and two people of color that, oh, I mightn't get a place on that panel or I mightn't get that job that I want or I mightn't get, you know, that profile that I want. And and I think it's actually just sitting with that, sitting with that discomfort and understanding that that, that has to happen. And I think that that's kind of part of it as well. I think that's a very thoughtful response and it's clear you have given it a lot of thought and are continuing to. I think at the moment it's so hard, like it's such a time of reckoning and I think that it is having to sit with your own discomfort and and acknowledging your own privilege. And, you know, I think for years, like I suppose, I really felt like that my success was due to the fact that I just work really hard. And I think it's really understanding now, yes, I do work really hard. But I was also like I had a head start, you know, that I was well educated, um, middle class, that my parents were really supportive. Um, And, you know, so there's all those things that you kind of have to take into consideration. And again, I think maybe that's not the most comfortable, but it's necessary. So what are you working on now, Louise? Well, I've actually just started something new and, you know, I'm really excited about just the prospect of having a new project and something to really sink my teeth into. And it's been interesting because, you know, with this book, with After the Silence, like ordinarily I would be very, I would have been very nervous before it came out and I would be very concerned with what are the reviews like and what are, you know, what are the sales figures like? And I think because this year has been this incredibly strange like not the most pleasant but probably quite necessary lesson in surrender I think there has been a part of me that has just sort of realized that I can't control this like the only thing that I can control is the quality of the work and once it goes out into the world you have you just cannot control how other people will respond to it um so you know as Elizabeth Gilbert says you know get it out into the world and then kick it to the curb And I think that's really important because I think the moment you become more attached to the outcome or the success or failure of the project rather than the work itself, I think that's actually when you're entering into quite dangerous territory. So for me, I think it's like it's out in the world now. It's going to do what it's going to do. So I just have to start, you know, get back to that desk and start writing again. And is it another thriller? Because have you you got an appetite for this stuff now? Yeah. Well, you see, it's kind of a like the idea that I've had isn't for a thriller. And I think that I have always been a writer who I'm not necessarily led by genre. Like I tend to just have the idea for the book and then think, okay, what is the best way to tell this story? And so I don't think this one is going to be a thriller, but I really enjoyed writing after the silence. Like of all the books, I think it was the one I enjoyed writing the most. And so I really hope that I can write um, another thriller. And yeah, so I'm, I, you know, I think as well, there's no point in like, you know, saying never say never, but I just, I enjoyed it so much. I would love to write another one. And going back to lockdown and that you were in Clonakilty, um, where you're from and where your parents are. Did you find that experience? I mean, I've spoken to a good few writers and t- they've talked about how writing is quite a lockdown experience. It is quite self-isolating, obviously without all the other nerve wracking things going on. Did you learn anything about yourself, Louise, in that time? Or did you have any observations? Roisin, I feel very ashamed because I feel like everyone is saying, I just had these incredible 
like just come to Jesus moments throughout the whole thing. <laughs> and I just feel like I didn't achieve anything. I didn't realize anything. Um, I didn't learn anything. I mean, the only thing that I learned to do was to bake brown bread, which was on, you know, Colm O'Gorman, um, his Instagram page, he was doing all these amazing recipes. Um, so it was from that that I, this beautiful soda bread that I have continued to make every week. So I do feel proud of that. But in general, I just think I just survived it. And I suppose I do think there was a lot of pressure on, you know, particularly at the beginning and to be incredibly creative and to learn a new skill and to make the most of this time. And every time I would meet someone and they would say, oh, you must be getting loads of work done. I just had such an enormous amount of shame over the fact that I was really struggling to focus for longer than like five minutes at a time, which is not conducive to sitting down and doing any writing. Um, so no, I don't think I, I, I don't think I realized anything. It's terrible. I, you know, I just, I found it difficult. I was very, I suppose my partner lives in Dublin, so I didn't see him for four months and that was really, really difficult. Um, and a huge strain actually on our relationship and on our connection. And so I think that was kind of a constant source of worry, um, so at this point, I just feel really relieved to be out the other side, even though I do feel like when Taylor Swift came out and with an, a, a complete album written and recorded and everyone was saying, oh, it's her best work yet. I was like, oh, I really hate Taylor Swift right now because again, I just feel like a piece of garbage who was so lazy and didn't like, I should have, I should be able to speak Spanish and play the guitar and, you know, have like, I don't know, a short novella written at this stage, but I don't have any of that, Roisin, I'm afraid. Okay, well, I learned ukulele, um, Louise, so the next time I see you, I'll play you a song. Roisin, please, you're making me feel bad now. Listen, ukulele, and I'm just looking at, like, ukulele's so easy, so easy. There's an F, I couldn't do, I can't do an F on a normal guitar. And now I can hilarious. I can't believe you just like picked up your ukulele. I was like, wait, did you did you know like you had it? My ukulele's always beside me in case I ever am moved to play a little song. It cheers me up, it makes me happy. So uh it's my little pick me up and um I can teach you the ukulele in a, probably an hour. So next time I'll I'll get you going. And then, okay. and then if anyone asks you what you learned, you can pretend you learned ukulele in, <laughs> in lockdown. And I do agree with you about folklore by Taylor Swift. Oh my god, but I loved when it came out because it was something cultural to kind of get your to it uplifted me and I played it every day for like two weeks. I, I just loved it. I didn't feel jealous of Taylor. I just think I'm glad Taylor's in the world and um Fair play. You're obviously a better. You're obviously a better person. I'm not. Than I am. Other things happen that annoy me in that way. With Taylor, I was just so happy to get more of her music because I'm a big fan and I wanted to sort of decipher the lyrics and I'm always looking for clues in her words. So it kind of distracted me. So I thanked her for that. But Louise, um, the book is amazing. It's called After the Silence, and I think. People who might not have read you before are probably going to read you now, which is brilliant. And go back to um, asking for it and all the other amazing works that you've done. So thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Roisin. And the best of luck with everything you're going to do. Loads of things, I know. Thanks to Louise O'Neill. And the book is After the Silence. And as always, 
if you are looking for a distraction, books are the way to go, I think. Although I heard John Banville on the radio over the weekend and he was talking about how art is not a distraction from the world, a way to get away from the world, but more it's a way to look at the world and look at the world within you. And I thought that was a really interesting way of looking at it. Uh, that's it for today. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs> Too tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.